Back in 2002, uh, nine-year-old Michael Archibald was playing baseball at one of the city parks in Chicago uh, when he collapsed running around the bases. Uh, his uh, father, uh, John Quincy Archibald, and his mom, Denise, were uh, there at uh, the game. Uh, they rushed him to Cook County Hospital where um, he was in the ICU, and uh, they told his parents that he had hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, uh, which is a fancy way of saying an enlarged heart. And they said that he was going to need a, a heart transplant if he was going to survive. Uh, they thought he may have weeks, probably days, uh, to live. Uh, Michael's dad, uh, John, hadn't, well, he had a job, uh, but had just changed jobs, and the health insurance hadn't kicked in, and so there was no uh, health insurance to cover the $250,000 surgery. The hospital uh, wouldn't do a surgery without at least 30% of the payment uh, being made up front, which was about $75,000. That was not something uh, that John Quincy or his wife Denise um, had money for. Uh, they spoke with family and friends, uh, and what they were able to raise uh, was less than half of what they needed in the hospital. Had begun uh, having counselors come and meet with them to try to uh, basically talk them into bringing their son home uh, to die. And so uh, John and his wife Denise had left uh, the hospital, and a little bit later, um, John actually came back just around the time that the uh, shift change was about to happen uh, with a gun. And he took the ICU uh, as well as his son's cardiac surgeon uh, hostage. Now, at the time, uh, no one uh, knew this, uh, but the gun uh, was loaded, but it just had one bullet in it. Uh, what John Quincy was intending to do was to take them hostage and make his son's cardiologist, uh, the cardiac surgeon, um, do the surgery uh, with his own heart. And the reason he had brought a bullet in was he was going to take his own life and then have the surgeon then take his heart and place it in his son's heart. What would you be willing to do in a situation like that for someone you loved? Because, I mean, that's extreme, right? Taking a hospital in Chicago, a whole floor hostage, deciding to take your own life so that your son could live. Um, I want you just to turn to the person next to you and uh, talk through that a little bit. Talk about a heavy conversation to have on a Sunday morning, but what would you do? Well, would you do something that extreme? How would you handle a situation like that? I'm going to give you a minute or so just to talk about it.
Some of you guys barely remember 2002. That's fine. But does anybody remember that story back in 2002? It was nationwide, actually. Uh, Nationwide. Uh, Actually, uh, the story went worldwide uh, in theaters because that's the plot of the movie John Q with Denzel Washington. Spoiler alert. John Q doesn't take his own life. A heart is found. And at the end of the movie, he winds up going to jail for a few years because he took everybody hostage. And as he's driving away in the cop car, he looks out the window and his son is on the side of the road and his son just says, thank you, dad. Thank you, dad. Because ultimately his life was saved because of the actions of his father. If you're like, why did you give it away? I wanted to go watch the movie. It's not a very good movie. That's why I I saved you guys a a couple of hours of your life, okay? If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn over to Joshua chapter 10. Joshua chapter 10. Uh, Last week, Austin shared with us Joshua chapter 9, the story of the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites were a uh, a tribe, a a small nation uh, that had a city in Canaan. They were supposed to uh, have been pushed out of Canaan by Israel, but they come to Israel before Israel knows who they are, and they deceived Israel. They they wore dirty old clothes, and they wore beat-up old sandals, and they brought moldy bread and old wineskins that were cracking, and they said, we're from a country far, far away. We've heard about Yahweh, your God, and what he can do, that he is the God of heaven and of earth, all right? Just like Rahab had heard and believed, the Gibeonites had heard and believed that God was who he says he was, that their gods were no match. And so they asked for Israel to make a treaty with them. Joshua should have inquired of God and asked God what he should do, but he doesn't. He just looks at them for face value and says, oh yeah, they're from a long ways away, That's fine. We can make a treaty with them. They know who our God is. They believe that he is who he says he is. And so they make a treaty with them, only to find out that they actually uh, are only a few miles away. Joshua comes to them and said, why did you deceive us? Why did you lie to us? And they said, well, because we know what you're doing and who your God is. And so Joshua says, all right, well, you're going to have to be water carriers, woodcutters for the house of God. And the Gibeonites said, that's fine. We will do that. They made a treaty, and we pick up the story in chapter 10. Now, I will say I was not planning, we weren't planning as a, when we put this series together to do chapter 10. Uh, we planned on going up to the Gibeonites, and then we were going to skip chapters 10, 11, and 12, kind of move a little bit later in the story, because a lot of things just kind of keep repeating themselves. 10, 11, and 12 really is uh, the story of how uh, Joshua and Israel captures the southern part of Canaan, and then the northern part of Canaan, and we've already talked about a number of these conquest narratives to see what God is wanting to teach us, that it's God who's actually doing the battle, it's God's fight, that the people are not... Uh, that God is fighting against, those folks are not fighting against Israel, they're fighting against Yahweh. And so Israel's responsibility was to obey, to do what God had asked them to do, to stay true to the covenant, but God was the one who was actually going to step up and do battle for them. And so we were like, all right, we've done this enough, we've heard it a few times, we kind of get it, so let's skip over chapter 10. And then I realized I needed one extra week because of where I wanted the last week to fall. 
So I was like, all right, we're going to find one of these that we can do. And I was like, oh, chapter 10 is great because that's the story that I always heard in Sunday school about the sun standing still. Like, that would be a fun one to do. And everybody's like, you're all like, yeah, that's, that sounds kind of cool, right? Like, let's talk about that one. Yeah, I studied it. It's not quite as cool. So uh, I'll explain to you what I think God wants us to learn this morning as we go through the text together. Cool? Joshua chapter 10. Let's start in verse 1. Now, Adoni Zedek, king of Jerusalem. Now, remember, Jerusalem is under Amorite control at this point. Israel does not... Uh, does not have possession of all of the land. So Adoni Zadok, he is an Amorite king there in Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had taken Ai and totally destroyed it, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and that the people of Gibeon had made a treaty of peace with Israel and had become their allies. He and his people were very much alarmed at this because Gibeon was an important city like one of the royal cities. It was larger than Ai, and all its men were good fighters. So Doni Zadok is like, yo, 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 the Gibeonites, they made peace with Israel. And that's kind of freaking us out because they're like way stronger, bigger, badder than Jericho or Ai. And it even mentions that their fighting men are like, all their men are really good fighting men. So Doni Zadok's like, yo, yo, that's not cool. Uh, verse 3, So Adoni Zedek, king of Jerusalem, appealed to Hoham, king of Hebron, Purim, king of Jarmuth, Japhia, king of Lachish, and Debir, king of Eglon. I have no idea if I pronounced any of those names right, but if you say it with confidence, everybody will believe you. So, Come up and help me attack Gibeon, he said, because it has made peace with Joshua and the Israelites. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon, joined forces. They moved up with all their troops and took up positions against Gibeon and attacked it. The Gibeonites then sent word to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal, Do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us. Help us, because all the Amorite kings from the hill country have joined forces against us. What's Joshua going to do? If I'm Joshua, I'm kind of thinking to myself, well, God has worked this out. I wasn't supposed to make this treaty with them, but we did it, and it's really because they lied to us, they deceived us, and now they're about to get their butts kicked by those five kings, kind of like, not really my problem, bro. Like, sucks to be you. You did this to yourself. The problem is, is Joshua had made a treaty with them, a covenant with the Gibeonites. Quite honestly, they had been enfolded into God's family. They actually had a job to do. A lot of times, uh, I remember at least when I first heard the story of the Gibeonites, I was like, oh, that kind of stinks. Like, yeah, I know what they did was wrong, and like they were deceitful and all that. But then they're like kind of forced into like, becoming servants for Israel, where they got to be woodcutters and water carriers. And I was like, that doesn't sound nice. Until I did a little bit more study and realized that they were forced to be woodcutters and water carriers for the house of God. And theologians actually believe that that was actually, even though it was a blue-collar type job, it was actually a real honor. They weren't woodcutters and water carriers for Israel. They were woodcutters and water carriers for the house of God. 
Uh, not only that, but part of why they were asked to do this was so that they would be under the oversight and care of the Levitical priesthood. One of the things, or the, the reason that God says he's trying to remove the peoples from the land is because their worship practices were abominable. Uh, some of them actually uh, would even do such terrible things as having child sacrifices and other things as a way to appease their false gods. And so God says, I don't want my people to fall into some of those traps of beginning to take on the worship of many of these people. That's why he wants them pushed out. So by placing the Gibeonites actually under the Levitical priesthood, the, their care and oversight, meant that the Levitical priests were going to make sure that that false idol worship wouldn't infiltrate Israel. And so now here we have the Gibeonites who are very much believe that they are a part of what God is doing with Israel say, hey, we need your help. Please come quickly. And although I would have been like, yo, that's your problem, bro. Joshua doesn't do that. Let's keep reading. Verse 7. So Joshua marched up from Gilgal with his entire army, including all the best fighting men. Verse 8. Yahweh said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them. I have given them into your hand. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. It's actually pretty interesting because just in the last chapter, Joshua doesn't inquire of God and gets himself in trouble. We see Joshua's learned his lesson, and now he has inquired of God, and God speaks to him and says, don't be afraid, I will give them into your hands. In other words, God is saying, yes, you kind of broke my covenant by making a covenant with these people, but I'm going to honor my covenant, and I'm expecting you to honor your covenant as well. Therefore, I'm going to be with you. And in many ways, God is then saying he's also going to be with the Gibeonites as well. And so here we have another example with the Gibeonites uh, echoing what happened with Rahab, how God takes outsiders and brings them inside his family. And so Joshua has learned his lesson. He inquires. God tells him that he's going to be with them. These are echoes of what God said to Joshua in Joshua chapter 1 when God commissioned Joshua to lead the people of Israel. God also said it at the Battle of Jericho. He also says it the second time at Ai, and now he's saying it again. Verse 9, after an all-night march from Gilgal, Joshua took them, the five kings, by surprise. Look what verse 10 says. The Lord, God, threw them into confusion before Israel. Israel didn't throw them into confusion. God throws them into confusion, the five kings. So Joshua and the Israelites defeated them completely at Gibeon. Israel pursued them along the road, going up to Beth Horon, cut them down all the ways to Azekah and Makeda. As they fled before Israel on the road down from Beth Horon to Azekah, the Lord hurled large hailstones down on them. And more of them died from the hail than were killed by the swords of the Israelites. God is showing that he's the one who's actually going to be doing the fighting. He throws the armies into confusion. He allows Joshua to rescue the Gibeonites. The kings flee. And God actually brings a hailstorm that kills more of the army that's fighting against Yahweh himself than do the actual Israelite army. You guys ever uh, seen some of the crazy hail that happens down south? Anybody ever lived down south for like through a tornado season? Nobody. Okay. Ah, thank you. There's somebody. Yeah. I sometimes I'm like scrolling Facebook and all of a sudden one of those like crazy videos comes up and it's like eight minutes later you realize you've just watched a whole bunch of different like storm, like hail, like videos and things like that. I get so sucked into those, right? They're like hail the size of actual baseballs 
like coming down on people's cars. Literally just like busting through windows, like just shattering stuff right through. Busting out windows, denting roofs, putting holes in things. And that's when we got houses to live in. Can you imagine chilling on your chariot, just like trying to get away, and all of a sudden like hail the size of, like it's taking folks out left and right. Boom, boom, pow. All right. God, God's doing the action here. Joshua is being obedient to what God has said. Now we get into the part that I thought was going to be very, very exciting. On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to Yahweh in the presence of Israel. Now listen to what Joshua says to God in the presence of all Israel. Sun, stand still over Gibeon, and you, moon, over the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the nation avenged itself on its enemies. As it is written in the book of Jashar. The sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. There has never been a day like it before or since. A day when the Lord listened to a human being. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. Then Joshua returned, Joshua returned with all Israel to the camp at Gilgal. Uh, I've got a map that I want to show you of what's happening, so we can kind of get a feel for it. So this is kind of Gilgal right here. It's right by Jericho, okay? You see Jericho right there? There's Ai. So they moved from across the Jordan River, took Jericho, took Ai. Gibeon is right here, all right? So they've been camping here. This is Jerusalem and all those other kings, the five kings. They're from this area. They come up, they start beating up on Gibeon. Gibeon sends word to Gilgal, where Joshua and Israel's at. That's where they come over, and they start uh, um, helping Gibeon, and all, everybody flees and starts coming down this way. All right, this is the Valley of Ajalon right here, and this is where this whole kind of battle is taking place here, down to here. Gives us a little bit of a kind of visual picture of what's happening and where all of this is happening. And during this time, in the morning, before the battle has started, Joshua talks to God, and then he says this poetry. I want to tell you the things that we don't know about this passage, because it's actually way harder to fully understand than I initially thought. So let me tell you a few things that we don't know about the passage. First off, Joshua right here is either reciting poetry that he's heard before, all right, because we know that it's written in the book of Joshua, Jashar, we'll, we'll get to that in a second, or he's actually creating the poetry right there, all right, coming off the dome. We don't know. We're not sure if he's making it up or if it's a poem that's already been written that he is reciting to God. We also don't know what's written in the book of Jashar other than this one particular thing. Uh, the book of Jashar is also mentioned in the Old Testament in 2 Samuel, and we're pretty sure that 1 Kings also mentions this book, but we don't have any copies of it. The book of Jashar does not exist. Uh, we know that it existed at one time. That was part of Israel's uh, important works that they kept. Uh, we're not sure if it's a book of songs or poems. We just know that it existed at one point. And what Joshua has just said is written down in it, all right? Whether it was something that existed before or after, we're not sure. There's actually three ways that we can kind of understand this poem. 
And the three options are really uh, as it's written, number one, okay, that literally God made the day just stand still, and there was like an extra 12 to 16 hours of daylight so that Israel could do what they needed to do that day. All right, that's kind of how uh, most uh, biblical interpreters, when they're making a translation, kind of translate it. That's why it says in our Bible that never has a day happened like this before or after. The problem with that is we're not sure if that's actually how it ought to be translated. And Joshua prays this prayer at the beginning of the day. How would Joshua know to pray for the day to be extended when the battle hasn't really even started yet and it's the very beginning of the day? No idea if it's going to need an extra 12, 16 hours or what exactly is going to happen. The second thing that it could mean is that the sun and the moon took a stand. So when we're translating the Hebrew words there, a lot of scholars actually think what is trying to be said or intended to be said is that the sun and the moon took a stand. In other words, we're willing to stand up and fight for Israel, meaning that the entire cosmos was aligned with the armies of Israel. In other words, Joshua's saying to God, God, I need you as the God of heaven and earth to make all of the cosmos Help us do what we need to do today. The third option is it could simply mean that the sun and the moon were not hidden in spite of the hailstorm. You ever seen a hailstorm come through? Do you see a whole lot of sun? <laughs> no, it's usually dark. So dark that it almost feels like night. I remember once I was at a Cubs game. It was like bright sunny skies and we knew that a, uh, a storm was coming in off of Lake Michigan. And somewhere between like the fourth and the fifth inning, all of a sudden the winds just started and the sky went from blue skies to, at first, like this kind of weird twilight gray, and then all of a sudden it was like green and dark. It was gnarly, and it started like raining like crazy and like thunder. And Like when a hailstorm comes, that could have meant that everything was clouded over, and Joshua might be saying, hey, God, uh, you're going to do some stuff, but I still need to be able to see. We need to be able to have light. What we know is that we're not sure. Did God actually make the day go longer? Was it one of these other things where Joshua was asking for the whole cosmos to be aligned with Israel to help them do what is necessary? Was it just simply that God was going to somehow miraculously still bring hail but also keep it sunny throughout the day so that Israel could do what they needed to do? We're not 100% sure. Here's what we do know. God was willing to do whatever was necessary to help Israel. God was willing to do whatever was necessary to help Israel. Now, I told you at the beginning of this that I have been, I was struggling, quite honest, with like, Lord, what do you want me to say about this? We've already talked about the conquest narratives, God. We've already shared with our community that you are the one that's doing the work and we're supposed to then just simply obey you and you'll actually do the fighting for us. And I was like, God, is that what you want me to say again? Because I feel like we've said it a few times already. And I was really wrestling with God because a lot of times I feel like my, one of the things I'm supposed to do is help, help us kind of have a biblical imagination of how we're supposed to live this out in our lives now in 2022. I think that's one of my main jobs as a teacher of God's word. And so I was like, God, what do you want me to say about it? And I felt like God said to me, take them to Romans 8. And I was like, hmm, okay. And God started to remind me of some things. Um, I believe that God still has a plan for the Jewish people. 
But I don't think that they are currently, the nation state of Israel is currently in a covenant relationship with God. Just like I don't think any country is in a covenant relationship with God today. Not the United States of America, not Ukraine, sure as heck not Russia. All right? But I do think that God wants to be in a covenant relationship with the members of his family, with his people. But it's not an ethnic family anymore. It's a spiritual family. This is what Jesus talks about all throughout the New Testament. In fact, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, reminds us that though Joshua was in a physical battle, we are in a spiritual battle today. He says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We're very much still in a battle, but the battle is spiritual. The same God that helped Joshua and Israel win that battle is the God that wants to help us win our battle. Do you know what the battle is for now, though? The battle is not for a stretch of land in Canaan. It's not for a part of this earth anywhere. It's actually for you and I. That's the battle. The battle isn't over land anymore. The battle's over you. The battle's over your soul, over your mind, over your heart. That's what God wants to fight over, fight for. That's what God promises that he will win. Flip over to Romans chapter 8 with me, if you would. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 28. This is uh, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church that gathers together in Rome. Rome is the largest, most powerful city in all of the world at this time. And so he's uh, writing kind of sharing his theology and what they need to believe and know and understand about God. He writes this in chapter 8, verse 28. He says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Do you ever have somebody quote that verse to you like in a really rough time? (laughs) And you want to be like, shut up. Right? Especially when somebody just quotes it like in a really trite way. We know God works for all things, right? It's going to turn out for good. You just wrecked your car. Probably going to get a better one. When we use this verse in a trite way, I think it actually does damage to what God is intending. It doesn't mean that the verse isn't true, though. But we have to understand what the good is actually referring to. God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Paul goes on to explain to us what the good is. It's just most people don't read past verse 28. Verse 29, it says, For those God foreknew, he also predestined. And now he tells us what the good is. They've been predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's the good. The good is to look like Jesus, think like Jesus, act like Jesus. The good is to be transformed more and more to think, act, live, look like Jesus. That's why God can take the bad stuff, the crappy stuff, the hard stuff, the suffering stuff, the war stuff, the pain stuff. And if we allow him, he can use even that stuff to make us more like Jesus. That's his goal. That's what he predestined us to become like. And I love Paul goes on after that. Verse 30, he says, And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. 
Those he justified, justification is a fancy word. It's like a legal term that just means that, means that your sin no longer counts against you. It's been paid for, redeemed. Christ's death on the cross redeems us. So he paid for our sin. So we've been justified. It's a legal term. means you're no longer guilty. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Paul uses glorified in past tense. Glorified isn't something that happens to you till you die, though. Or Jesus comes back. What Paul says is God sees us as we will be already. Uh, we call this an already not yet theology. In other words, you're already seen as holy, but you're not yet. <laughs> and I've been around a few of y'all long enough to know some of y'all definitely ain't holy yet. Me too. Verse 31. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Look, what Paul is saying is like, what God wants is for you to look like Jesus. That's the battle that he's in. The battle is not over land anymore. The battle is for you, for your soul, your mind, your life. And God promises that what he started, he's going to bring to completion. And he says, what can we say then? If God's for us, who can be against us? Who's going to be able to stop us? And then he goes on and says, look, if he was willing to give his own son, don't you think he'll give you whatever you need to become like Jesus, to win the battle for your mind, for your heart, for your soul, for your life? Woo! Friends, I'm just telling you that's some good stuff right there. Keep reading with me. Drop on down to verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Drop down to verse 37. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You are in a battle. We are all in a battle. But it is a spiritual battle, and it is over you. It's not a swath of land anymore. It's your soul, your heart, your life, what you're becoming. And God says, look, if I was willing to give my own son, don't you think I'll give anything that you need? If I got to bring hail sto stones down from heaven, if I got to keep a day longer, whatever it takes, I'll do it for you. I have no idea what it would be like to have be uh, John Q from the movie. But I do remember uh, six years ago when my daughter was nine. And she wound up in the hospital. She had gotten some sort of an infection that had put her kidneys into kidney failure. And at the time, as a dad, I'm, uh, I'm being strong for my, for my girl, right? I don't want her to worry about it. But there was a couple of days that was pretty touch and go. We weren't sure what was going to happen. The doctors had given her the medication. We just had to sit back and wait and see how her body would respond, how it would react. We didn't know if she was going to need to be on dialysis the rest of her life, if someday she was going to need a kidney transplant, if her kidneys were going to fail and she would need a transplant right then. 
I know in that moment I was, I was willing to take a, a pocket knife and cut my own kidney out if it would have helped my daughter. Don't put me under. Take it. Because that's what a dad will do for his kid. Um, ever since uh, my daughter's been three, we have, a, we have a kiss that we do every night before she goes to bed. She's 15 now. I had to get her permission to share this. Uh, she has a beauty mark on her corner of her left eye. And I always called that her pepper. And so I would always say, Daddy needs some pepper. So I'd go in and I'd get a kiss. And then, of course, I'd say, well, you can't have pepper without salt, so I need a kiss over here. And that eventually, over time, turned into we start with a kiss on each cheek, and then we do an air kiss, and then uh, we do pepper and salt and forehead and then nose, and then we hug each other, and we fight over who loves each other the most. And we've been doing that since she was three years old, every single night. Do you not think that God loves you even more than I love my daughter? Do you not think that God loves you even more than I love my daughter? If he was willing to give his own son for you, don't you think he'll give you whatever you need, no matter what your problem is, no matter what you're going through, no matter what's in your life, that you're just not sure if God could ever actually change it, transform it. God's desire is that you would look like Jesus. It's what he wants. It's what he started, and it's what he promises that he will finish. He has already declared you as holy like his son. And in the meantime, he has said, I will give you whatever you need and nothing's going to be able to separate the love that I have for you. You can't go anywhere too far. You can't go anywhere too low. There's no power that can take you away. If God is for you, friends, nobody can be against you. And as I was praying about what God wanted to say through Joshua 10, God said, remind them remind them of my love remind them that they are the thing that I care about the battle is for you and God wants to help you win it and I just knew that there's somebody here today that just needed to hear that that's what God said somebody needs to hear this today usually I like to give you something to to do a way to take the message and then like act on it. Today there's no action other than faith, other than to believe that what God has said is what he really wants, what he really desires. And that is his love for you can't be stopped. And he has not given up on you. So Father, we want to be a people who actually believe those words. That you'll do whatever it takes to help us become more like Jesus, to live like him, to think like him. That the battle that's taking place right now is not a physical battle, it's a spiritual battle of who we're going to become. So Jesus, today we just want to give you permission. Fight for us however we need to be fought for. Remind us of your love for us. Remind us that nothing can separate us from your love. 
Remind us that you don't give up on us. Even when we don't see a way out, a way up, you do. Thank you for what you have already done on the cross. We look forward to the day that you return and make all sad things come untrue for your glory and our benefit. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray.